following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. This week, we're going to welcome back two of our former guests, Dr. Jill Woods from the Nepal Leprosy Trust and Barrister Ian Neal SC with Grameen Australia to discuss microcredit financing and the difference as little as the cost of a meal out in Australia can make for people in impoverished communities seeking to transform their lives and communities. The Leprosy Trust are has an established microfinance initiative that is making enormous difference in the lives of women and their families impacted by leprosy and poverty-stricken communities in Nepal. Many entrepreneurial enterprises have sprung from the initiative and are thriving. Jill will be sharing some stories about these successes and personal insights garnered from her active involvement and time spent volunteering in Nepal treating leprosy patients. And later today at 9.30, Ian will be joining us via phone and he is the current chair of Grameen Australia and former CEO and he will be sharing with us the new social microfinance initiative of Grameen Australia. So we'd like to introduce Jill, this morning, welcome back to the show, Jill. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be back. I have to say, I was very excited to come back. I had such a good time last time, so thank you. (laughs) I can't believe it's been that long since we've had you here. It's it's almost a year, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think it was. Wow. Around autumn last year, we had you here. So has that gone? I know. (laughs) I know where it went. It's called COVID. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is true. Yes. (laughs) We're very lucky here at the radio station. We were able to continue broadcasting live throughout COVID, uh, and I think that's part of the reason being in Canberra. Too. we've been really lucky with that we live in you know, a we haven't here, been impacted we? as severely yeah absolutely mm. we've been very very fortunate mm. so Jill, a little bit of your background you're a qualified podiatrist from the UK you've taught podiatry at undergrad and postgrad level and you specialized in wound care and high-risk foot management and that was quite significant because of the reason that you were in leprosy helping and volunteering to treat leprosy patients so a lot of people you know they don't know too much about leprosy because it's it's a bit of a medieval disease right like people don't think of leprosy in the modern world and it's still quite prolific um, and one of the things that you had shared with us last time you were here is one of the reasons that um, wound management is so important is there's a lot of wounds on people's feet so perhaps you could give a little bit of background into what leprosy is for people that are sort of imagining medieval monks tending to leper colonies so what, what does modern leprosy look like oh that's such a good introduction actually because people do people think it's a biblical thing and it yeah. kind of died centuries mm-hmm. ago and it's just not true mm. they, I think there's something like 200,000 new cases um, occurring every year and it's the numbers are still huge and we've got um, it's, it's caused by bacteria so it's a bacterial infection that is treatable by taking antibiotics. So the solution is really simple. Um, and so we shouldn't be in a position where we're still being impacted by it. But what happens is the bacteria starts to, it gets, it kind of lives, if you like, inside the nerves, inside the nerve sheaths. And it affects your fingers and your toes, your feet and your hands. Um, and you lose sensation. So the old kind of myth is that when you have leprosy, bits fall off. Basically, what happens is you lose the ability to feel anything, to you can't feel any touch, so you injure yourself, you don't realise. 
or you reala- don't realise it's so you quite severe. You might burn yourself on a cooking fire. That yeah, sort of thing. and the, the people we're talking about that generally contract it are living in very impoverished conditions. I mean, medieval is how I would describe how they're living. Um, so they live in these impoverished conditions. So they're cooking on just wooden fires, literally little bit piles of wood they're burning outside their houses. And so they burn themselves very easily. These people are ploughing their fields barefoot, so they injure their feet really easily. Um and they don't realise the the wound gets infected, the infection tr- spreads from the soft tissue into the bone, and 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 just by a natural kind of process, you start to lose the the, the kind of digits, if you like, mm-hmm. in your fingers and toes if it's not treated quickly. Um, and I say it's such a shame because it's so easily treatable, but the stigma that goes with it. This is also very medieval. <laughs> the stigma that goes with it, um, it's getting less. It is getting less. Education is really working, but the stigma attached to being a leprosy patient is still incredibly harsh Mm. people are just rejected Mm. by their family their community um, and until you see that firsthand you can't imagine what that actually looks like I've seen a 13 year old girl who was absolutely literally physically thrown from the house by her father um, and and was just that was it there was no support there was no nothing for her age 13 she Mm. was just out fending for herself in a community that had nothing so she couldn't beg and that were probably going to ostracize her anyway if she was going to seek support from someone absolutely absolutely so yes it is it's still it's still prevalent and it's still impacting lives in a very very big way and because we're talking about impoverished communities here and we're talking about communities that maybe have had um, a lack of access to education and obviously a lack of access to medical resources and care um you know there was this anecdote you shared with us last time you were on the show about um, the public toilet situation in Nepal. And I'm bringing this up so people can get a really good idea of just how difficult it is to keep things hygienic in these situations, regardless of all the other barriers. So you have a situation, right, where um, public toilets were basically the fields yes. before, and then the government yep. brought in an ultimatum or something. That's right. So they brought in Ural. So basically, if I can sort of paint a picture, mm. imagine there's a village, mm. and the village is made up of very, very basic mud and wattle um, huts. The roofs are just sort of like rattan or palm leaf type roofs. There's nothing on the floor. There's no physical doors or windows in the spaces. There's just spaces where we would have a door or a window. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very rudimentary. And so there is no running water. There's no power. There's no electricity. There's no facilities at all. And so if you want to go to the toilet, you have to go out into the local field and find a quiet space and do your thing. Um, And the Nepali government brought in a law that it was illegal to defecate in public. Um, And so they started enforcing this law by basically roaming some of the rural areas and, and beating people with sticks if they saw them um, going to the toilet in the fields, but they had no other yes, place to go. You have, you have go. no plumbing, you have no toilet. Even <laughs> in your village, you have no toilet, maybe there's, one toilet. There's one, the, the, yeah. one of the villages I visited the last time I was there, there were 40, I think 42 or 43 homesteads, if you like, in the village and one toilet mm. and two water pumps. Um, so, you you know, and bear in mind, these these are not small families. These are families of three and four children and two parents. So there's a lot of people in that environment all trying to use five one toilet. times 40 or trying to use one. Yeah. One toilet. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's just incomprehensible to us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so they are they're They're in a situation where insanitary conditions is the norm. Uh, they try their hardest to make things clean and to keep things clean. And, you know, bear, bear in mind also that they're they're living in one space. There's one room in these in these houses, in inverted commas. Um, 
So that sometimes they have a, a makeshift sort of wooden bed frame that they use, they sit on during the day and sleep on at night. But then in that room, there'll be little piles of clothes and little piles of pots that they used to cook with. And the animals will be roaming in and out. And, you know, they're, they're, most of them are walking around barefoot because they don't have, a, a lot of them have sort of um, thong type footwear but it's very very primitive it's, it's almost worse than medieval when you think about it right you know you're thinking of yeah the average medieval peasant probably even had a bit more than that quite possibly mm. yes quite possibly um and it's and it's the thing that's shocking is down the road there's somebody with an iphone and a toyota hilux and a three-story house mm. uh, and is connected to the internet via 4g yeah and that's the social inequality exactly that you experience exactly yeah so yeah um one of the reasons that drew you to work in Nepal was wanting to make a difference. Yes. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey on, on what was it like for you to go there and experience that and then actually work with the leprosy patients and perhaps a bit a bit of a brief about the um, leprosy, leprosy hospital at Lauga? Sure. Okay. So the thing that drove me really was I just felt I had a skill set. You know, I was, a, I was a wound care specialist, a podiatrist wound care specialist. And in the UK, I was treating diabetes patients, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and all of whom needed my skill. But I saw a presentation from somebody who'd been out to India and worked in the street clinics in India. And I just realized that I could use my skills to actually teach people in those locations to help themselves or to help other people. And that way I could kind of impact more people. Um, and so I was very, very fortunate. I was teaching at the University of Huddersfield at the time, and they very kindly gave me a sabbatical and six months um, to go out to Nepal to, as, uh, with the intention of teaching wound care skills. So that's what I did. I went to Lalgar, which in 1999 was, had been open for three years. It was a very basic hospital, um, single story brick buildings um, had been set up uh, by a lady called Eileen Lodge, who had just had this vision that she, she needed to help these poor outcasts outcast people and so well, she, she was stab- a nun is that right she was a nurse a nurse a right. nurse but she was very devout christian um and so she she managed to get government eventually government support who gave her the worst piece of land the thick jungle she had to manually clear the land build the hospital she managed to recruit some really um more devout christian but also medically trained local people to help her so by the time I got there, the hospital had been going for three years. Um, and But it was still incredibly basic. You know, the, we were still struggling with power, um, with water. Um, feeding the patients was very much just everything in one pan. Everybody eats the same thing kind of thing. There was no choice at all. Um, and so it was very, very basic. But immediately I got there, I was seeing wounds that I just, I'm not even going to describe them because you would have you throwing your breakfast back up but it, they were they were grotesque the wounds I was seeing huge huge wounds and I really really quickly realized this is where I can make a difference mm-hmm. um so I spent six months there teaching wound care skills and, and other podiatry skills to the staff who were there. And the idea is to, to make the hospital entirely supported locally so it can be manned and managed and staffed by local Nepalis. Um, when I was there, I think there was a team of five overseas people were there at the same time. Um, and now it's, it is pretty much self-sustained, which is fabulous. But uh, the skills needed are quite specialist and the equipment needed is quite specialist. So that was another challenge was to start getting donations of equipment so we could get them the proper wound care, you know, 
care that they really needed to solve their problems. Because the minute you have an open wound and you're walking through a paddy field barefoot, you're going to get an infection. Um, and so we needed antibiotics, we needed dressings, we needed everything to help these people get better. But it, the situation has improved so much since I went there first time. So it's uh, it's fabulous to kind of see those ripples that go out. And it's not it's not all down to me, obviously. I did yeah. a tiny, tiny piece of that work. But, you know, it, it's just amazing. But you leave a legacy, right? Like there's, yeah. a, there's an actual physical piece of legacy left behind. I believe it was a headlamp. Uh, so is, yes, so, a great story you shared. So they they were really struggling. Um, when you when you're working in an environment where the power goes off very regularly, uh, um, it's very hard, and you've got to be able to see really clearly what you're doing when you're waving. So you're doing a, surgery, and the power I was goes say, off. Yeah. You're, you're you're waving a scalpel very close to somebody's, you know, a big artery or something. You've got to know what you're doing and be able to see what you're doing. And uh, so when when I went, um, and this is very re- fairly recently actually, when I went in 2018 they were still really struggling in the wound care department to, to see what they were doing so I left my head torch um, with them and uh, when I left and they so they started using the head torch for doing um, the work that they were doing in there and then through um, my community of, of practitioners that I now work with in my business, we generated some funds and we were able to actually get them a wall mounted proper surgical kind of adjustable lamp yeah. to go in that room. Um, and so now they don't need my head torch anymore. <laughs> But that probably made a huge difference to a lot of people oh. during the head torch era, right? There yeah, I know oh, absolutely, yeah. and it's and this is part of I think what we need to talk about is how mm-hmm. how big an impact you can make with very small things, mm-hmm. um, and I think the the fact that head torch definitely impacted the team and their ability to do their job mm-hmm. better, um, and it is it's it's those little things that can really make a huge huge difference, mm-hmm. and this leads us to the next step. So you know you've got a situation where you've got people have got in there who've volunteered to support the communities that are affected by leprosy you've now got some sort of medical infrastructure um, yeah. you've got a situation where you're starting to educate people so people mm-hmm. are learning about the disease but there's still a lot of stigma attached to uh, having the disease and there's a lot of people like this 13 year old girl you described her yeah. being outcast yeah. and this is a disease that on a social level apparently has a greater impact on women Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, it's very difficult when you're dealing with a culture. For me, you know, I, I, I was born and grew up in the UK. So culturally going to places like Nepal, um, it's a very, very different culture. And they have a very strict caste system that they still adhere to. Um, and if you have, if you're of a low caste, you're already at a disadvantage because you're living, already living in poor conditions. If you're living in poor conditions, you're much more likely to contract diseases like leprosy which further disadvantages you. So those people who were, I say, living low caste, impacted by leprosy, and some of them, it's not just the the, the immediate patient, but the patient's family also gets ostracised and gets treated very, very differently. Mm-hmm. And part of the caste and, and the cultural to an extent cultural system in Nepal is if you're a female your role is to find a good husband to marry to have children and keep a good home and that's your role and the minute like that 13 year old girl the minute you're diagnosed with something like leprosy um, means nobody will marry you and so your purpose in life has gone and what we're seeing through the work we're doing that we'll come on to talk about later but is that we're empowering some of these women who have not been able to marry to find purpose in life because that's that's it's almost like their entire reason for being has gone um when they they're put in this position where they you know they they're just 
nobody wants to speak to them nobody wants to pay them to do any work nobody so they're basically reduced to begging if if they exactly can get that. anything exactly that and you know we we, it, we it's it's amazing some of these people just are some of the kindest most generous lovely people you will meet and um, I had the pleasure of meeting an old guy who um, through a birth deformity had extra toes on his feet and through his leprosy, he couldn't feel them. So they were always getting infected and damaged. And, and so we said to them, look, why don't we just take those off? Like they were sticking literally out the side of his feet. And, and, and I, we said, we can really easily take them off. We can stitch it back up. Nobody will ever know. And he was mortified. He was like, this is how I learn my living. I beg and people give me money because they feel sorry for me because I've got these extra toes. And so we thought we were giving him a great solution, but we were actually making his problem worse. You're taking away his revenue source. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, to be fair, part of the culture in Nepal is also a very giving culture. So they will give to charity if they see somebody in that kind of situation. They're very much um, of the frame of mind that they should... Is that a sort of Buddhist approach? I think, I don't... um, Hindu, the culture's a bit of a crossover between Buddhism and Hinduism, um, but they are very giving and they do feel an onus to give to people who are worse off than themselves. Um, So our solution to this guy turned out not to be the solution he wanted <laughs> uh, so yeah it's, it's and it's just giving you it gives you a whole different perspective on life and how these people live um and begging yeah you're right begging is a big part of how these people make a living mm. so i reckon that would be a sort of reciprocity a sort of give and take sort of things we're going to come back to this later on but uh, just wondering if that might fit in here with that generosity sort of giving to get back from the Yes. Yeah, I think there is. I think there is a degree of that. Yes. If you're seen to be generous and giving, then it'll come back to you. Mm. That sort of give, you know, give and you shall receive type mm. type ideology. Um, but yes, it, it is. It's and, and so to an extent, it, you know, there is there is scope within um, sort of certainly the cult, the area I was in, which is rural, very rural Nepal. Um, there was very definitely a culture of giving to help these people. But I don't want them in my house. I don't want them in my village. I don't want them actually working in my business. But here's a few, you know, rupees to kind of ease Which your burden. Which is probably quite similar to how people on the fringe get treated globally. I mean, unless they're um, being persecuted, sure. directly persecuted, that there's a sense of you can alleviate your own guilt yes. by giving something, or whether you do it through a yeah. charity and you never meet the person. That's right. You yeah. Know, as long as you much, don't have to deal yeah. with it on a day to day. That's right. Describes the guys sitting down the local shops. Yeah. Yeah. Or downstairs in our building. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. And there, and don't get me wrong. There are there are a lot of people in these kind of places who are trying to help others and help themselves. Um, but there's also a, a huge amount of corruption. Um, mm. in these countries and, and that is a problem and mm. so whilst people like you were saying Scotty you know people are seen to be giving um, on, this, on the face of it but actually the reality is often they're taking um, behind yeah. the scenes too so um, and I think that's something when, when Ian joins us in the conversation a bit later um, there's some dialogue around that too that they had some trouble when they were setting up microfinance in Cambodia um, right. that it's the, it's the corruption at the yeah. government level that was really hard to circumvent that's right to, basically set up the structure for microfinance where it wasn't being abused mm. and it wasn't being skimmed. That's right. Mm. And and it was interesting going right back to the beginning of the story of the hospital in Nepal, you know, and, and the battle that Eileen had just to get a piece of land from the government because she wouldn't pay bribes mm. to people to get 
a better piece of land. She was, no, no, this is the calling. This is this is the this is where I need to build the hospital because these are the people in need. And they wouldn't, you know, they just wouldn't give her a decent piece of land. They gave her the worst possible piece of Thinking land. Thinking that she wouldn't do anything with exactly. it. I, I think that's probably what they were just trying to dissuade her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fortunately, she wasn't. She was a tough old lady yeah. and she was not dissuaded. <laughs> Thank goodness for people like Eileen yeah, Lodge. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, talking now about the next step from, you know, we've got medical infrastructure, you've got education happening, but you've still got these people who are outcast who are basically begging to survive. So the next piece was how do you how do you help someone after you've treated their disease and now they need to, to live, right? Like how do you help them? raise their quality of life that's right so that the the, one of the things the hospital did which was a stroke of genius was they started a a program called the self-care training unit and they built a new building at the hospital and anybody who was who was who came to the hospital bear in mind on a on a busy day they have over 200 people just rocking up at the hospital with no appointment system you just show up and somehow you get treated and seen and diagnosed and helped and all that sort of stuff but anybody who arrived and was a newly diagnosed patient who was deemed at risk they were actually put into the self-care training unit for two weeks and in those two and weeks you explain to us so risk would be someone so somebody who doesn't have any family support somebody somebody who is clearly living on the margins and is borderline surviving um, or is getting a lot of abuse at home or just somebody who doesn't have if, if we were to send you back home now could you do what you need to do by yourself and survive yes no if the answer is no then they they, they get they get put into the self-care training unit which even to us is an anathema can you imagine going to the hospital and them saying yes you can't go home you can't collect anything you're going in now two weeks you just shut down for two weeks so anyway self-care training unit and in there they start to educate them about the disease about its impact about prevention about treatment and about self-care and the minute you start to to treat these people like human beings and teach them about self-care and show them care so us as external we're not going to shun you we're not going to throw you out we're not going to throw stones at you we're going to care for you we're going to teach you how to look after yourself and that's when the process starts is just really educating people that this is not something to be scared of this is something we can treat you you won't necessarily develop deformities if we treat you in time um, and we can teach you some skills and they teach them how to cook on an open fire without burning themselves. They treat them how to um, manage a bullock on a chain without cutting their hands. They teach them how to plow without getting their feet injured. Um, and they teach them all of these basic life skills, but with a, a kind of a slant towards looking after themselves rather than just getting the job done. Um, and then they also give them a lot of education about what to tell people in their community about leprosy so we can squash some of the the fallacy and the lies and all the rest Mm. of it and the old wives tales and that's where it starts it's from the grassroots really starting to nurture these people and educate the rest Um, and the self-care training unit does an amazing job of helping people even people that have got severe impacted from the leprosy so they've got lifelong deformity Um, I saw a guy when I very first went to the hospital a guy who literally had no fingers half his half both of his hands missing no toes half both of his feet missing um and he was able to be taught how to do things for himself um that he couldn't previously do and that just elevated his quality of living um and and from there then there comes a cascade of other things and so the next step was they started running outreach programs 
So the outreach, out, there's now over 110, I think, local community outreach programs running in the vicinity of the hospital, um, just supporting patients affected by leprosy um, and just giving them somewhere to go, some community that gets them, that understands them, where they can talk about their worries and concerns, about their deformities and how people are treating them and that kind of thing. And, and addiction, a lot of these people turn to alcohol um, as a means of just coping. And so talking about alcohol and how we can, you know, cope without drinking alcohol um and and all of that just goes to what as you say to the next takes people to the next level of, of coping and managing and moving on with their life and then when they get to a situation now you know where they like your 13 year old girl she's been outcast her family maybe hasn't been able to accept the education and and welcome her back into the fold mm. she's now got to earn a living she's been basically begging so this is where the, the microfinance loan initiative comes in, right? This is where yeah. the next step is how do you upskill these people to give them the independence to become entrepreneurs and support themselves yeah. and their families? And 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 what's incredible, so um, this is, that wasn't, uh, that uh, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here. So the, the, univer- the, hos- the um, hospital had a very... Um, kind of they'd already been running some of these small microcredit loan schemes and they discovered very quickly that women were much better at repaying the loans than men Um, and so uh, they decided that actually the way to go was to support the women in the community Um, and so the women were given um, were start with they started off with very very small loans and what's fascinating is some of these women are just naturally entrepreneurial Um, and so we give them an equivalent of $56 so they get $56 and from that they absolutely make magic happen and so it's 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 just incredible to see they they buy with $56 you can buy a baby buffalo and once you've got a baby buffalo you can grow a baby buffalo into big buffalo and then you can hire it out so people can plough their fields instead of doing it manually they can rent a buffalo and uh, and then you can breed with that buffalo and make more baby buffalo and from $56 and one baby buffalo you can create a whole empire of buffaloes and ploughing and and all of that stuff and it's just phenomenal to see. Yes, and, and the beautiful thing about this is that um, then you've got the next generation that inherits that from that family, right? Like oh, then you, you, you're you yeah. creating this legacy of and each family gets to benefit from that. And it's and it's it's huge. I mean, I, I've got some numbers here. So we started our um, microcredit loan scheme in two villages with $1,000, okay? And because people borrow and pay back, borrow and pay back, borrow and pay back, we've actually lent out in ex- almost $3,000 in loans, but we only put $1,000 in because they pay it back and we lend it out again. We l- so the, the, the amount you can give just keeps going up the and up recycling, and up. recycling, it's amazing. Exactly, exactly. So I'd just love to welcome um, Ian to join our conversation. So we've got um, Ian Neal on the phone who's joining us now. And uh, Ian, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you back again. Thank you for having me again. Okay, so um, I just wanted to give our, our listeners a little refresher here. So we had Ian on the show with us last December before Christmas, and Ian is one of the um, key people behind the creation of uh, JobKeeper, and Ian was with us uh, last December to talk about what was waiting for us at the bottom of the JobKeeper cliff when all of that goes away. And that ties in quite nicely to what we're going to be talking about today, because 
one of Ian's other hats, he has many that he wears, is actually as the chair and former CEO of Grameen Australia. And Grameen Australia is a new um, social business microfinance initiative that is being started up. Um, so what we just talked about with Jill earlier in the show about what was happening in Nepal, there's something very similar to that that is going to be established or is being established in Australia. So I'd love to welcome you to the show, Ian. And perhaps you could give us a little bit of background of um, Grameen and your work with Grameen. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to participate in this uh, discussion and I'm looking forward to learning from uh, Jill's experiences. Um, uh, where to begin? Grameen Australia. Grameen Australia is a part of the Grameen family. Grameen has been uh, active in microfinance since it was conceived and developed by Professor Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh in uh, 1974. Uh, it's grown from a tiny start, 47 loans, in 1974 to, to be now the largest financial institution in Bangladesh and, and substantially responsible for that country's remarkable uh, uh, success in lifting large numbers of its people from poverty. And the idea spread around the world. It went uh, first to America, uh, much encouraged by the Clintons. When Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas, uh, Grameen America has prospered and uh, helped very many people in that country. And uh, now we are hoping to introduce it, or working to introduce it, to Australia mm. for the, the first time. Yeah, and the word Grameen, I had to go look it up because I thought it was such an unusual word, so I thought I'd uh, go and have a read about it. So it's got a lovely meaning. It's um, word Grameen is made out of two words, gram, which is village, uh, or means of the village, um, and it's saying that so this is about um, being of the village or maybe the global village in that sense, so that the idea it, is it that it the It very poor, much yeah. speaks of the idea of community mm. and, and connection, they're two fundamental precepts of the Grameen idea. That's lovely. So when it um, began in the 1970s and, um, you know, it was established, there was a Grameen bank, I believe, that was established in Bangladesh? Essentially, yes. And that was uh, from where the loans were being offered, is that correct? Correct. Right. So um, with Grameen, the concept of Grameen coming to Australia, like I know Joe, um, Jill was talking about loans of $56. So I'm thinking we're probably talking about a little bit more than that in Australia, but they're still micro loans by our standards to um, people in communities who are looking to improve and raise the quality of their life. So there's, I've got a ballpark here of around sort of $5,000 to $10,000. Does that sound about right? That's about right. Um, in, when Grameen started in America the limit was a little less than $5,000, and now it goes up to about ten dollars or $15,000, depending on the purpose of the loan. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at something like that. Right. So who is, who is Grameen going to help in Australia? Like who, who would be um, the target communities and individuals that you're hoping to reach out to and support? Fundamentally, Grameen looks to give access to finance to people who, through um, poverty or social exclusion, uh, don't have the opportunity to participate in uh, the financial world. The, the sort of people who 
aren't lent money, except on usurious terms, from financial institutions. Broadly, uh, they're the sort of people that we would be looking to work with here in Australia. Uh, there are dismayingly high levels of poverty in Australia still. Uh, we're economically, of course, a very successful country, uh, but we have not been successful in eradicating poverty. There are pockets of uh, deep poverty uh, throughout the country, and we're looking to start in the sort of places where that's to be found. And among those sorts of communities, we would be looking at um, areas where there are um, high levels of uh, migrant communities um, new to Australia with uh, the, the sort of people who won't have the, the uh, employment or financial background and means to enable them to borrow, uh, have access to financial markets, to have access to finance, um, uh, Aboriginal communities. Uh, they're all the sorts of people we are looking to work with. And it sounds like that some of these people that you've mentioned, probably quite a few of the people that fell through the cracks of the JobKeeper scheme, um, scheme initially, uh, that you know, you've got a situation here where this potentially could step in and help create a transition from the end of JobKeeper for people that weren't able to access JobKeeper to something sustainable. So I believe there's um, an intention with the microfinance initiative to use it as a strategy as part of the COVID recovery. Very much so. It, it, it has the capacity to uh, lift um, communities out of poverty which the pandemic intensified and and intensified largely because as you say many people did fall through the job keeper cracks which were very wide and deep and you know with this idea of having microfinance as a recovery um is there going to be any uh, government support or is it is grameen going to function entirely as a non-government org we are working very closely with governments. It, it would be... We are independent of governments, but um, uh, for all the reasons that you've identified, our, our purpose and objectives align very closely with governments who are looking to, to find ways to, to lift us out of the pandemic. Uh, so we are... We will have and, and are working with governments to have um, support from them. Mm. And the reason I wanted to touch on that is because when I was doing um, a bit of research into Grameen and I was looking at um, the microfinance initiative and the history of it in Cambodia, that there were some real challenges that, um, that the microfinance initiative had around the predatory lending practices. And I think you touched on this just when we started the conversation as well, that for some people who are you know, not eligible for traditional lending resources. They're not good candidates for a bank loan. They're going to predatory lending agencies and they're, you know, 
taking payday loans and that sort of thing at extremely high interest rates, which they can't possibly hope to pay back unless they have a windfall of some kind. And then you had the similar situation in Cambodia where you um, had uh, a situation where there was a a lot of um, illegal stuff going on and, and that the lenders were, you know, ill repute and they were um, having weak consumer protection laws and inadequate enforcement mechanisms. But in Australia, we're a little bit luckier. You know, we have fairly strong institutions like the Australian Securities and Exchange Commission and the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. So there's places for people to go in Australia um, to circumvent some of this problem with predatory lending. So is, is, is that how Grameen's going to be working with that that way? Predatory lending is a problem all around the world. Grameen's... Um faced terrible opposition in its early days in Bangladesh from the uh, village moneylenders, some of whom were charging interest rates of 20 to 50% a day on loans that they were making. So that people were working, borrowing money uh, and forever trying to catch up, never getting ahead. Uh, you're right to say that, there, uh, that the lending market is more closely regulated in Australia. In, in, oddly, I interpose, that um, makes setting up a microfinance operation in Australia more difficult, but once it's set up, it makes it more secure. Um, But although there's regulation here, predatory lending, payday lenders uh, are still a terrible problem. And we are looking to be a real alternative to that. We we would want to be the... uh, the, the place that people turn to uh, rather than to a payday lender. Mm. And that's exactly, you know, you're filling something, a niche that's exactly needed right now because, you know, people that go to payday loans, most of them do not want to be there. They do not want to be accessing that kind of high interest rate and they don't have a choice. It's either that or not being able to pay their rent or or being evicted or, you know, some other serious situation in their life, which they have no other means to um, find a solution for. And and here you are stepping in with, um, you know, an alternative that's ethical, that's, um, you know, going to be hopefully growing over the next little while as people, you know, maybe can't go back to the work they were doing before COVID, maybe in their communities, businesses that had employed them have shut down and aren't going to reopen. So it's a really wonderful initiative, like Jill was saying earlier in these communities, to to create this concept of um, an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, someone with a good idea but no resources to actually birth that idea and, and bring it into fruition has suddenly got the resources and the support to do that. Fundamentally, the idea behind all microfinance mm-hmm. is to uh, unlock and enable um, opportunity and potential. Uh, and and as Jill said earlier, uh, magic happens when you do that. Uh, she gave some powerful and exciting examples, and we've seen those sorts of things all around the world, exactly those things, and that's what we are bringing to Australia. Hmm. Um, so, Jill, before we brought you into the conversation, because we kind of had a quick change there and some technical difficulties, you were sharing with us a lovely story about um, what happens when you can get one buffalo calf. I believe there's a, there's a real example of that. There was a lovely picture you showed me of this lady who was hugging you, and I asked you what was the story behind that, and it sort of ties back into what you were sharing. Like, this is actually a, a you know, real-life story that yeah. you witnessed. Yeah, absolutely. So, hi, Ian. Sorry, I just should say hello. Lovely to meet you. Um, um, 
it's... lovely to meet you, and I'm I'm so looking forward to hearing about your experience. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I was very fortunate. Um, I got to go and visit a lady who was sort of the end result, if you like, mm-hmm. of one of these micro credit loans. And the system that we operate is we for your very first loan you can get fifty six dollars until you've got a proven track record of paying it back. We won't lend you any more. If you lenders, if you pay that money back, then you can get a double loan, so you can get one hundred and twelve dollars, um, and with one hundred twelve dollars, you can buy two, two buffalo, two baby buffalo. So this is exactly what this lady had done. She'd bought one, I think, with her first loan. She bought a couple of goats um, and managed to pay the loan back, and so she was then in this, the realms of being able to buy two baby buffalo. So she bought two baby buffalo, and she reared them. She didn't have any land. She didn't own any land at this point, and so she reared them by walking on the road, the curb side of the road and just eating the grass on the side of the road um, and that's that was her job every day she would get up and walk her buffalo out and back out and back up and once they grew up she was able to rent them out um, and then with the money that she made to rent them out um, she was able to buy some more goats and so she ended up with a, a flock of goats flock is that the right word no herd herd, herd of goats <laughs> and um, she uh, and then with her buffalo she was able to um breed them and so from her $112 she is now in a position I think where she has six buffalo and 13 goats all of which are breeding all of which she is selling she now and and the other part of this story and Ian alluded to this the other part of this story is being part of a community and the minute they become part of our momentum club they're in a community they have they're with like-minded women who are in the same position as them poverty stricken some of them do or don't have husbands some of them do or don't have violent husbands that they're they become a really really tight-knit group of women Um, and with the power of that comes a a huge growth in confidence Um, we spend a lot of time educating them about their rights um, about their ability to register for citizenship um, about their ability to become landowners once they've got a birth certificate and citizenship you're then allowed to buy land so this lady at the end the end story and is, this lady was impacted by leprosy was she, uh, she was sorry yes yeah. so yeah. her husband was severely impacted mm-hmm. he was diagnosed didn't get treatment became very severely disabled couldn't work um, she contracted it from him she went straight to the hospital got treatment immediately so she has no residual effects at all of the disease whereas husband is now pretty much bedridden by it um so she became became the money earner, but she has now put herself in the position through $112 that she now has this huge kind of flock of animals. She bought land. Um, she built a makeshift house. When the uh, huge earthquake hit Nepal a few years ago, that house was leveled to the ground. She's been able to pay to build a proper concrete uh, cement house, they call them. So she's got a cement house with three rooms in it with doors and windows. Um, she's got a disabled child that she's now permanently got into private school and all of that from $112. And she's also now become a really respected community member so she's able to pay it forward as well to Ab- other members yeah. of the community. And, and it's that, yeah. that's that phrase that, that a, a rising tide raises all ships. Mm-hmm. And people saw what she was doing and saw what she was achieving. And they, lots of the other women in the, in the community sort of put their hand up and said, I want to be part of this. Mm-hmm. I, want, I can see what you're doing and I want to do this. Um, and she is now the leader of her local support group, leprosy support group. 
um, and and has attracted so many more women to that community who are now running successful businesses. And but these these are not businesses on the scope that we think of a business in Australia. These are bus- these are very very low key businesses, but it's enough to sustain them as a family. So if we can give somebody a bicycle and some cash to go and buy some bananas, they have a business. They have a mobile banana selling business, and that is enough to give them that that lift that so you're talking not, about. I think the situation before you'd mentioned was that they were, if they didn't have a bicycle, they couldn't get the food to the market before it went off. Yes. Right? So this was yeah. making it possible to get the food to the market fresh. Correct. And sell it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, and one of the other amazing, it constantly amazes me, and Ian, I'm sure you've seen this as well, but the ripples that go out, the impact of what you do as a, as a consequence of doing these tiny little gestures is that one of the groups um, that we support in a tiny little rural village called Tulsa, um, they have the women in that group kind of ganged together <laughs> and basically went and put pressure on the local community leaders. Um, and they have since built a surface road to their village as a consequence of that group. And that is a phenomenal in- increase and improvement in their situation because now the communication links between them and the nearest town it's speeded up that journey so they can get their product to market before, like you say, before it rots and before it, you know, it, and, and the road is safe. It's passable. The children can get to school now. They couldn't get to senior school before because they couldn't, the road was so unsafe. Um, and so the impact is, is just huge. So you're basically putting infrastructure into these communities. <laughs> I know. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? And, and all from $56, an yeah. initial seed of $56. Yeah. And that's what we said. It's about the average cost of a meal out in Australia. And and it's made this huge difference, which is going to last for generations. There's something um, Grameen also mentioned too, is that that you've noticed um, the majority of people who are impacted um, by poverty in these um, communities that are struggling are women. So you've got the the comparison here. You've got Mm -hmm. a situation in Nepal, which we're thinking of as a third world country, people living in semi-medieval conditions. And then you've got a wealthy country like Australia, but you've also got impoverished communities, people who fall in the street cracks of government support, and, and the majority of these people are women, or women um, are the ones who are potentially able to make the most difference through access to, to microfinancing. Is that correct, Ian? It's both of those things. Um, the experience of Grameen in Bangladesh when it began was that um, uh, women were reliable borrowers uh, and tended to use the money that they borrowed for um, worthwhile and effective purposes and purposes that had the ripple effect that Jill has described. Um, Think about in in the lovely story that Jill told, just think about some of those ripples. And and Grameen sees this all around the world. Um, One of the ripples is um, uh, empowering, is the empowerment of of, um, the woman who borrowed that money. Uh, and the women that she inspired, the financial independence that um, uh, she acquired and responsibility and standing that goes with that, uh, the um, benefits personal and social of of a, a stable family, um, the education that her um, child acquired and the consequences of, of that, um, lending money to women... Uh, experience shows tends to increase that ripple effect in powerful ways and And that's why most of the Grameen loans around the world um, tend to be given to women to to a very 
very high percentage. In, in Bangladesh, well over 99% of the money lent out goes to women. In America, about 97%. And I think one of the things Jill shared with us last time she was here is that for a woman, because her um, sole purpose in the Nepalese community was to get married, find a husband, get married, have a family, um, that there wasn't a lot of other work options um, available. And for the men, even if they had contracted leprosy and they'd been able to access the hospital and get treatment and, and you know, get... Um, cure the disease they might have some residual effects or residual mobility restrictions but they're still able to go out and do physical labor and do work so there was still access to um, resources for income whereas for the women there was really nothing and when the microfinance initiative became available that opened so many doors in many places around the world women face additional barriers of um uh uh social barriers to to working and obtaining finance and taking control of their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, Grameen is, helps with that. Yeah, that is amazing. Just in the way that Jill described with, with um, her program in Nepal. Mm-hmm. And is Grameen in Australia going to be any different from how it is, say, in, in somewhere like Bangladesh or, or, you know, a country that's maybe not as, as fortunate and uh, privileged as Australia? Of course it will be different. One of the... Um, uh, strengths of the Grameen model, which has grown empirically. It's not a theoretical thing. It's, it's um, uh, one of the precepts of its founder, perhaps reflecting his approach to life, Professor uh, Yunus, is you um, learn by doing, and Grameen has done that around the world. Uh, Grameen in America, a society which is very like ours, e- economically and perhaps in some ways socially, uh, it's a developed country, unlike to, to a much greater extent than Bangladesh, for example, it, it's different. Grameen operates differently in America than it does in Bangladesh. But the fundamental precepts are, are the same. Um, the, the notion of lending small amounts of money uh, with no collateral uh, to, poor peop- uh, to, to the poor to be used for income-producing purposes. That's the core of the idea, and that, that's applicable as much in Australia as it is in Bangladesh. I was wondering, because um, clearly the economy is quite different in these places, um, what's the Australian equivalent of a buffalo? Um, the answer is, it's not for us to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's one... That's, that's another core Grameen precept. Um, we, we don't tell people what to do from above. We help them uh, work with their own ideas. Yeah, and just to go back, uh, one question back. Um, I was thinking while you guys were talking about lending to women and the empowerment and stuff that that happens, one of the, one of the key problems we face on the earth is overpopulation. And, of course, one of the, the most humane and, and obvious methods of, of solving population problems throughout the world is, is education and empowerment of women. So have you been able to get any stats on, on whether these two things are going together? Um, in, in Bangladesh and other uh, developing countries where Grameen has been operating for many years, yes, they do go together. And, and could I add, uh, a very powerful... Um, impetus to population growth is poverty, mm. probably the most powerful, the most influential factor. Tackle poverty and so much else follows. 
And one of the things that I saw that you've set up with the Grameen Australia, which I'm not sure if this is happening in Nepal as well, as jump jump in there, Jill, if you think it is um, similar, so that um, there is some interest rate charged on the loan. So I don't think there's interest being charged in Nepal. Is that correct? We, we don't charge interest, but we charge them a membership fee. Okay. So mm. they pay a dollar a month to be part of the club and that goes into the coffers and that's added to the money that we can lend out. So, but there's no interest charge. Okay. And in the Australian um, uh, set up here, it's going to be about 10 to 12% interest on a five to $10,000 loan. Is that correct? That's about what we're working at. Okay. And that the wonderful thing is here is that um, to help people who've maybe not had experience in borrowing money before, who don't really understand how to structure things financially, um, that there's a quite a good model set up here. So there's um, help to get people to make uh, a set amount commitment to pay back per week or per fortnight. And uh, 80% of that goes to repaying their loan. And then 20% of that might go into encouraging to create a savings vehicle. Uh, broadly, those figures are correct. One of, one of the essential elements of the Grameen program here as around the world, a, as in the program that um, uh, Jill is working on, um, uh, is financial and uh, education uh, and education assistance support in developing a business. For, for example, um, uh, simple accounting, so essential to, to running a successful business, however small it might be, knowing how much money, what, what's coming in, what's going out and, and on what, um, Grameen uh, gives uh, support and education on something as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. So, so you're putting money back into it again like with the savings that that person is then able to um, access that money after a certain point or is it... Correct, um, yeah, correct. Yeah. And also, and the savings also finance other loans to other people. Mm. Yeah, it's that we're doing this very similar. The, the membership fee that I talked about, we actually couch that as a saving so the, the women call that their saving money um, and they put it into the club because they know they can get it back yeah and it, it all fuels the fuels the vision oh, that's incredible so it's for them it's also empowering to know that there's um more money than is required to survive that's you right know, there's a sense of resources beyond and above what's needed for daily survival yeah and the, the other problem that we i think we have that probably won't be an issue in australia is banking so the, these people do not have access to banking so their only means of saving is to put it in a tin and hide it from their husband um, whereas if they give it to the club um, it's kind of it's still cash and it's still floating around in the village um, but it's managed by somebody that's it's out of reach um, and so that feels much more secure to them because they don't have a bank they can put money into. That's wonderful. And, you know, I guess some of our listeners might be asking, well, you know, someone who's really struggling, who's setting up a new business, you know, there's a lot of risk involved in new business, as we know, and that, you know, the business idea might be good, but the business might not take off and it might be a difficult struggle for someone to repay the loan. Or maybe there's, you know, other personality traits that um, might impact someone being willing to pay back the loan. So um, perhaps we're going to go to Jill first. And Jill, you were telling me a story um, when you were in Nepal about being asked to come and yeah. 
strong arm someone into repaying a loan. Don't, so this don't was, make it sound bad. It wasn't no, no. bad. <laughs> and I just have to share a lovely word that Jill shared with me um, earlier, Ian. It's called Bideshi, which means foreigner. So that's what they call the, yeah. the foreigners in the ports, Bideshi. So as a Bideshi, you were asked to come and assist in a situation about loan repayment. Yeah. So there was a lady who um, hadn't been repaying her loan. And, and what's really interesting, and I'm sure Ian, you've probably seen this as well, is the women who join these groups, they they become empowered, but they also really become, it elevates their sort of self-worth. And, and if somebody in their group, so in our little momentum club, if somebody in the momentum club isn't paying back their loans, that's seen as a slur against everybody in the group. Um, and so the women are really hard on the women, the people that don't pay the loans back. Now, I have to say, we, I think, Ian, I saw on the Green website, you get 99% repayment. We, we're currently running at 96%. So we're a little bit behind you, but we're not far behind. Um, and yeah, so I was asked, uh, there was one lady who was who did Actually, she she had a bit of an alcohol problem, and as did her husband, um, and so the family was had fallen on quite hard times, and she wasn't able to repay the loan. And I was asked to go um, because the other thing that I never really had any concept of before for these women part of the sales pitch that Lolita who manages it for us out in Nepal does is that this this money has come from a white woman. Um, and there's huge, huge credibility attached to being part of the club because it's supported and funded by a white woman, somebody away in the sort of developed world, if you like. And so for these women, it's like a badge of honour to be part of that club. So anybody who brings disrespect on that club is really, really frowned upon. Um, but this one woman was not paying her loan back. So I was actually asked to go along and to sit in the corner Um and I think Lolita told her that if she didn't pay her loan back, I was going to be very cross and she didn't want to see me very cross. I had no idea what she was actually saying, but apparently that was the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that reminds me of um, the, the economist, uh, late economist Eleanor Ostrom, who did an awful lot of studies on the commons um, all around the world. And of course, the commons are, it's a resource and it's, uh, which in this case would be the the lending facility um it's the group of people who control the resource or who are associated with it very closely which would be this group of women and it's the rules that they they make to to manage the asset um and one of the things that she found in common all over the world was a thing called graduated sanctions where if somebody transgresses the rules of the group first they say oh look you really shouldn't be doing that it's not that good and next it's like hey stop that <laughs> at some point they bring the white woman in the corner of the room <laughs> it's exactly that yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, she did she did she replayed her loan so the the order was uh, was returned so that was yeah. fine <laughs> And everybody's face was saved. Yes, yes. Fortunately, everybody could go back to being part of a prestigious group that didn't uh, hadn't been its, its name hadn't been slurried by a, a member. So, Ian, if someone is struggling to uh, repay a Grameen loan, what sort of supports or um, initiatives would there be to to help that happen? There are several levels at what uh, at which that happens, but the most important of them is the is the group, the Grameen idea is built around um, the concept of a, a, a group, conventionally five people. Uh, we're looking at the same model here. Um, loans are made to um, people individually, but in order to qualify for a loan, um, each per, uh, borrower must be a member of a group. The groups 
assemble themselves. Um, uh, and it is the group that makes uh, the application for a loan. Um, the, uh, if, if somebody is having difficulty repaying a, a loan, uh, that's something that affects not just them but the group because the capacity of any member of the group to um, apply for a new loan is to some degree influenced by the um, repayment history of each member of the group. And so uh, at, at the first level, if people fall into difficulties. There's a tremendous incentive for the other members of the group to work with them to help them resolve that. And then Grameen has people who, uh, uh, branch officers, who uh, help with that. Um, ultimately, uh, uh, if somebody is in real difficulties, loans are restructured, and there, there are many levels at which loan repayments are restructured. Um, the objective is not to punish, it's not a, a retributive thing, and it's, it's not so much to recover the money either. It's to help lift people out of that problem. Mm. And this could also be, you know, people experiencing circumstances beyond their control, an accident, um, illness, that sort of thing that, mm. um, you know, for all intents and purposes, they really did expect to be able to pay back the loan, but something now has happened. It's made that impossible. And if you think about a country like Bangladesh, um, as no doubt in Nepal, very often um, those sorts of problems are not confined to... Um, particular people or, or families or even communities, they're much more widespread. Think of massive floods that like Bangladesh, for example, that affect hundreds of thousands of people and over the life of Grameen, millions of borrowers, sometimes all at once. Mm. And this is you know, a situation where this lady, you know, she's built up this wonderful herd of goats and buffalo and a flood could come in and she could mm. lose all of that overnight and that's all her hard yeah. work gone. And, and we've, we've had an example very recently where one of our ladies, um, she bought her a goat and that was her investment and the goat got sick and died. Um, and so that was her $56 gone, you know, and so we need a mechanism to go in and support her and and make sure she's not, you know, back on the skids yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah well then i guess you get things i think there's um organizations that then go and do um volunteer work for veterinary care for the agricultural farm animals so that you've got an, another organization coming in and setting up some infrastructure there as well like you've got now the medical care at the hospital at Lalgar, and then now you're going to have people with um doing animal husbandry with more animals under their care and, and maybe needing some support there yeah that's right and and to be honest there, there's a huge amount and what we found really interesting i don't know whether it's the same for you ian but we've we've because we're obviously dealing with a very small kind of sector of the population very sort of niche if you like um but we found that they've they've really excelled at the animal-based business um so we don't limit it to buffaloes and goats we've got people selling bicycle uh, selling bananas and you know on a bicycle we've got people buying a sewing machine and doing tailoring um but for some reason these people they're very they're they're living in a very rural area so it's what they know um and so they're they kind of understand animal husbandry and so actually we've had very few um, issues around ill health for the animals and, and they certainly do not maltreat the animals for sure um, so yeah but it's an interesting idea that we could sort of think about an, an extension of, of looking for other, the next level yeah as, as that's the infrastructure right builds and builds that's right yeah 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 and so something that um 
you had talked about, Ian, was that, you know, not only are you having these groups who are supporting their members, but there's also going to be uh, mentoring and training and business education offered. So it's not Very just you coming so. with Very a business so. idea and it's trying an to set it up. It's essential aspect of the scheme, yeah. of the idea. And are the people who are um, supporting the mentoring and the training and the business education, are they, are they Grameen um, members or, or are they subcontracted? Like, how, how will that work? Um, uh, probably more uh, from within to begin with. And then the idea is, and, and this has been the experience of Grameen um, banks all around the world, the idea is that the people doing that mentoring work will emerge from amongst the borrowers. And I think that's happening in, in Nepal as well, as you were saying, that there's going to be people that will yeah. start taking on more responsibility almost out of instinct. That's right. And we've got a really interesting situation where actually it's one of those situations where you think you're delivering one thing, but actually what the people receive is very different. So we think we're delivering $56 loans, but in reality we're building a community of people who know how to register the birth of their child and the death of their parent, and they know what their, their human rights are, and they know now if they register they can buy land we can teach them how to buy land and we're teaching them healthcare and and you know birth control and all of that other stuff it's so so much more and that's being driven by the members and what they want to raise their lives and to raise their quality of living a, a powerful illustration of that 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 uh, inspires me is that now every member of the board of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh which is the largest financial institution of that in that country as i've said lends out billions of dollars a year Every single member of the board is somebody who began as a borrower. And by definition, to be a borrower, they, they were amongst the poorest of the poor in that country. Isn't that and just now inspiring? Running an enormous, powerful financial institution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I we, the lady that we've got, and it's I just kind of Pramila. She's she's the the um, sort of key key worker, if you like, in one of our groups, and she has just absolutely raised her game. She has gone from being a person affected by leprosy to being an absolute huge huge player now in her local community, um, to the extent that she's been able to secure funding for eleven houses to be built for members of our group. Um, She's been able to register her citizenship. She's been able to buy land. And you just think if we could get her some more training, some more education, what could she do? And it, it's, all, it's all about integration too. The, the, uh, uh, the borrowers that, that we're working with, that Jill is working with, these are all people who through um, uh, social, cultural, uh, other reasons, accidents of birth are excluded. Yeah. And by means of these very small loans, they are brought within um, society, yeah. uh, integrated with society, playing important, often influential parts within society. Uh, it, this is more of the ripple effect that we were talking about, which is such a powerful and uh, exciting consequence of the microfinance idea. And we're in a world that's really ripe for this as a strategy. And like this is um, probably, you know, we always talk about the Great Reset, but there's something here that in all the negative that's happened in 2020, that there's the potential to recreate something in, in, in a better model of what it was. And, you know, you've got now people who are forced out of work, forced out of their traditional sources of income and potentially going to start something incredibly wonderful and new that's going to, in perpetuity, maybe, um, make huge changes to our societies. 
Very much so, very much so. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're looking at people who, who by reason of, of exclusion, a- accidental exclusion for which um, uh, that, that really is an accident of birth, um, tra- traditionally, at least in our society, we, we look upon people like that as a social liability. Um, but they're not. They're... they're social opportunities the the task is to unlock their potential to enable it and and to uh, put them help them put themselves in a position where they can make a real contribution to society and on so many levels too as Jill was saying like on the self-esteem level that's transformative because we you know you know so much of the negative we experience in our communities is often can be traced right back psychologically to low self-esteem, whether it's in a leader or an in individual who's, um, you know, not able to support themselves. And, and it's changing assumptions too. It's teaching other people outside in the wider community that actually these people that we thought were dirt on our shoe are actually very capable and they're actually contributing enormously to our community and our well-being and they're lifting all of us up. Um, and I think that's so important to, to give people you know that just to make other people stop and look and see that these people they might like Ian saying through you know uh, you know however they've come to be in the situation they're in they're actually they've got a lot to give and a lot to you know contribute to their local communities and it's giving I think this learn is in some ways giving them permission to succeed right sometimes it, it sounds like a crazy um, concept that you have to be given permission yeah. to make your life better. Yeah. But, and I think in some ways that that's the little switch that goes off for a lot of people. It, it is a powerful demonstration of belief, belief in the person to whom, yeah. um, uh, with whom you're working. With, to, uh, and belief is, um, it, it's so encouraging. It's encouraging for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and and the, for me also doing the work that we do um, with the the women, that the the impact on their children, so that they are now seeing their mothers being upstanding members of their community and not downtrodden and not, you know, um, just shuffling around in the shadows as they were before. And that next generation, that you know, I, I think I totally agree with you, Ian. That 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 the power of that, so that these children are seeing that actually. They, they can believe in themselves um, and they can achieve because certainly the families we work with, they're all affected by leprosy. And so as children of leprosy affected people, they're stigmatized too and they're, they're sort of downtrodden and not given a chance. And, and so for them to see that it's possible to elevate yourself above that, I think is really powerful. So it is the dare to dream model, right? Yeah, it mm. is. It is. And, but it's giving them that belief, like it, it's possible. So, you know, for, like for Pramila now, her daughter is looking at her in a far different light than she would have been two years ago um, because her mum is just doing most amazing things. <laughs> yeah. So and when- then her daughter, no doubt, thinking about the possibilities for her own life in a Absolutely. different way. Absolutely, yeah, we're, we're actually interesting. We, we're just about to give her daughter a scholarship to go to school as well. So um, she's her life is about to go completely uh, on uh, on Turbo Boost. <laughs> yeah, so when, when I, I guess I introduced the concept of the commons a little while ago, and commons are essentially for a group to look after that asset, whether it's land or something else in perpetuity, when a road comes in or so, there's some sort of access for the general world market to come in and start extracting all the resources out of this place and the commons generally gets broken up. Are there any sort of 
any means in either of your um, your organisations that are, that are looking at that and trying to figure out ways to, to sort of counter that negative effect of market access, I guess. Is it like a risk of becoming too successful that you then mm. open yourself up to you become more vulnerable to the outside world in negative ways? Yeah, and I think I think I, I agree, and I think part of the, our, our challenge is that we're operating on a very different level to Grameen, and you know we we're we're not these people we're giving them money and they're making money but they're not running a structured business um and so whilst that functions brilliantly in the current sort of culture and an environment that they're living in when that starts to shift that ability to run a business where you don't need any public liability insurance and you literally have a bicycle have some bananas bingo you've got a business that is going to come unstuck and i i, I don't have a an answer for that um at the moment we're just doing what we do with the people we work with and you know and hopefully that's they are going to come to their own solutions. Like that's the idea. You're empowering people yeah. to become autonomous that way, right? Because, yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully. And I think there will be there'll be some people that don't make that that shift. But I think that from what I'm seeing, we've had 36, lo- uh, 39 loans so far, and 36 of them have for two years now and are continuing to the businesses are continuing to grow so even though they're not structured they don't have a marketing plan they don't have a business bank account but that they are progressing and they are growing and developing and learning as they go like um, Ian was saying the principle of Grameen is you know learn as you do kind of thing and and they're doing that and hopefully within like you say from within will come those solutions as change happens. And this is where I guess you have to be careful as an outsider from a privileged position looking in not Supporting but not interfering. Yes, I yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. That's so important. Yeah. So, um, for Grameen Australia, Ian, what are the eligibility criteria for? So say that we've got some listeners and they're in a regional impoverished Indigenous community, thinking, oh, I've got this really good business idea. Here's a, a vehicle for me to get it off the ground. So, what's the eligibility criteria, and how would they go about um, starting that process of, of applying to Grameen for a loan or to be assessed? It, it really depends on where you are and the nature of the program. So there's no universal rule. Um, generally, we, uh, the Grameen idea around the world is... Uh, uh, Professor Eunice's precept is we work with the poorest of the poor. So w- um, that has a different meaning in a country like Bangladesh, for example, than it does in Australia. But that's the... Well, we are targeting the, um, in terms of income, the, the bottom 10%. Uh, so that's, that's probably the most important um, qualification. Uh, then there's membership of a group, and, and that's driven by the members of the group themselves. They, they constitute the group. Um, and then we're looking for ideas, business ideas that are income producing uh, and that are viable. Um, uh, we're not looking to fund pie in the sky because we don't want to get people uh, into uh, something they can't get out of or struggle to get out of. The, the idea is to produce income. Um, but we don't have any prescriptions about what that is. Uh, the, whole I- the whole idea is that um, the borrowers themselves will conceive what they want to do with the money. 
And to um, to be considered um, eligible, so you've touched on some of the points there, so that obviously uh, poverty and being in a community that maybe had po- access, poverty access to resources. Add, and I should add implicit in um, perhaps other things that I've been saying, is exclusion, practical or, or exclusion, from the financial market. Mm. And pe- people who, who don't have a capacity to... Um, obtain finance on sensible, realistic, um, just terms from existing financial institutions. Mm-hmm. And I might just get you to move a little bit closer to the mic, Ian, if I could. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's easier. No, I'm I so, do the I'm same so thing. I'm so excited by talking about all this that I've <laughs> leapt up and I'm walking, pacing up and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, I wave my arms around here. Yeah. You can see me waving my arms around I can do all of this with hand signals in yeah. the studio. So... <laughs> uh, so then again, it comes to, say, the other side of it is somebody who's really inspired by hearing from you and Jill and thinking, like, I would like to be someone who provides a loan to these organisations to help somebody become an entrepreneur. So where, where does the, the money come from in the sense that if obviously there's a pool of money from various other sources, but if you wanted to be involved in being able to provide a loan, how, how would someone go about that? So I'll let Ian go first. Well, in, in, in our terms, yeah. uh, what, what we need is a pool of money um, which will be uh, uh, in part funded by government or government-related sources and in part we're looking for philanthropic uh, contributions. Um, the whole idea, ultimately, the idea of Grameen around the world is that the that people who put money in to fund the the pool from which loans are originally made, ultimately um, they can do that either as a grant, contribute either as a grant, or they can get their money back, but without a a dividend. Yeah, so the interest goes into the Grameen pool, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And then the idea is that once you start off, once you constitute the pool and you begin lending money out, then the borrowers themselves, um, uh, by repaying their loans, um, that money back in the pool by paying interest, they grow the pool. And the whole idea is that uh, ultimately it becomes self-financing and that has happened in many places around the world. That's what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And that would be the seed money Would be you'd be talking about is some government money, um, some philanthropic money, and then from that it starts to grow on its own. Correct. Right. Um, so, Jill, how would how would someone become um, a fifty six dollar buffalo fifty six dollar banker for somebody? Yeah. Who'd like so, to help? ours is obviously a much lower kind of, but much smaller organisation, much lower tech um, setup, um, and we just simply have at the moment we've got two communities we're supporting 56 women um, and people are very very welcome to contribute what's been really interesting to us is we've now got requests from other local villages to start more groups um, 
And so we are very definitely looking for some more support um, to help us seed fund, like Ian's mm-hmm. described, seed fund those other groups. Um, and so for me, it's very much just a case of making a direct contribution to the charity, which is Nepal Leprosy Trust. Um, and they then make sure that money goes directly. So they don't need to specify it's for the microfinance. It just goes it's, to the trust and then yeah, the trust Yeah, you can specify the part. And I'm sure, Ian, you'll, you'll have come across this. What small charities have problems with is when people want... And I... And I understand this totally people want to know exactly where their money goes Um, and it's very hard that the more the kind of bigger you grow the more money comes into the pot it's very hard for people to say oh that's the child I sponsored to go to school or that's the woman I sponsored to to kind of grow her business Um, and as much as we would love to be able to do that that's not an option but we we very much have got um, a, a pot which is the microcredit loan pot within Lalgar and uh, Nepal Leprosy Trust and so we can guarantee that your money goes directly to those women who are um, looking for loans but we can't tell you specifically which woman you have sponsored. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just we, as we're getting closer towards the end here I wanted to just come back to Ian and touch on something lovely I read on the Grameen website which was Professor Yunus's goal for Grameen of building a world of the three zeros mm-hmm. and that could you tell us a little bit about the three zeros rather than uh, having said? Three zeros has proved to be an enormously uh, powerful idea. Um, it um, uh, zero poverty, uh, zero unemployment, and zero um, emissions it is the objective. Uh, now, I wonder if. Um, um, now the uh, experience of the pandemic, I wonder if it might um, uh, prompt a fourth zero, uh, zero COVID. Mm. <laughs> That's a wonderful concept. And, you know, I think just keeping in mind those goals, like everything that you've both shared with us today, um, you know, it, it, we can see the possibilities. Like, you know, you can start small like at a $56 mm-hmm. one goat, one buffalo level, and then you can mm-hmm. take it to the next level, which is in Australia, we're now starting, um, you know, with five and $10,000 loans. And, you know, this is phenomenal and hopeful for people who are coming out of the COVID situation much worse off than they went in. And, and this is where I see for not just in Australia, but globally, we, we, this is where the work needs to happen, right? And it needs to happen at so many levels. One of the um, uh, activities that Grameen, as an organisation around the world, and that Professor Yunus uh, himself is now working very hard on, is um, uh, access to vaccines uh, and a- an equitable approach to that. Mm. Something that, looking from the uh, outside, seems to be a growing problem. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just again really really hopeful because all these little things are going to be making huge changes. So we're just about out of time. So if somebody would like to um, get in touch and find out more about your organisations, where could they do that? So Ian, where would they go to find out more about Grameen Australia? Probably the best place is our website, and Grameen Australia will get you there. Okay, fabulous. Um, and if they wanted to get in touch with you. Uh, Ian, with sorry? me personally, yes. through the website. Through the website, okay, wonderful. Through and, the website. And uh, Jill, where should they and get please in? do, can I say, I'm, I'm uh, happy to hear from anyone and talk to anyone about the Grameen idea. 
around the world and in Australia. Wonderful. We do have some international listeners, so that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, And Jill, where would they get in touch about the uh, Nepal Leprosy Trust? So very simply to get in touch with them, just Google Nepal Leprosy Trust and you should find their website. I think they're on Instagram and Twitter too. Um, And if you want to find me... Jill Woods, jillwoods.com, that's me. And I believe you're also on Facebook too with Practice Momentum. Yeah, so Practice Momentum, Instagram, Facebook, all the, all all the, the, all the platforms. <laughs> and if listeners actually have a look at the post we did for this show on our Behind the Lines Facebook page, you'll see links to both Ian and Jill and Grameen and the Nepal Leprosy Trust there as well. So here we are again, out of time. So I'm going to have to thank both our guests for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having both of you back. Jill in studio with us, Jill Woods, who's a podiatrist, a British podiatrist who's working with the Nepal Leprosy Trust and a barrister Ian Neal SC who very kindly uh, joined us for the second time after helping us out with the whole JobKeeper scenario in December and then talking to us about Grameen Australia today and the microfinance initiative for thank you both for taking the time to be on the show with us today. Thank and you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au. That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U. Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.